good to be back with you all today. Let me just quick announcement to our members. Daniel has some information about uh, the windows, doors, things that you talked about last week. So if you're a member, see him afterwards. And he also has dates about uh, re- when to redo the parking lot. So uh, we want to figure out what date would be the best. So see him afterwards. We'll, we'll make a motion about the... Um, well, we'll have a, a special business meeting about the, uh, the windows and doors and stuff in a few weeks. But uh, you'll get more information about that. But now, let's look at Scripture, because that's the... Uh, the main thing we do to gather together and see God's word take effect in our, our lives as a people of God. You know, it's amazing that what we're doing here is not, you know, giving you any special pill or, you know, infusing your body with anything. Or we're not even showing you sort of a, you know, a, a, a tearjerker movie or whatever. We're just talking about God's word, opening up the word and just talking about it. And because God is sovereign, and because God creates through his word, he uses that talking about his word to effect the greatest change uh, there can ever be, to create a people for himself that will bring him praise and honor and glory throughout all of eternity. It seems like a little thing that we do when we gather together, particularly on a Sunday when so many of our regular folks are, are out for one reason or another. A small gathering... There's much bigger gatherings at a football game or a baseball game. You've got to get the season right, right? Baseball, football's later, I think. Uh, but nevertheless, here, what we're doing has a much greater impact for the, uh, all of eternity. So please, open your Bibles to Psalm uh, 89, and we're going to talk about it. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. What is the essence of the Christian experience? What's the essence of the Christian life? In other words, if you boil the Christian life down, taking out everything that's not essential, what's left? And let me clarify, I don't mean sort of what are those elements in the Christian life that you know you ought ought to be there, like the Bible and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, you know, what we sometimes call Sunday school answers. No, I mean, what's the essence of the Christian life in the sense when you are doing the Christian life, what are you doing? And I think the answer that we would get from the Bible is that the Christian life is a life of faith. The Bible says we walk by faith. We live by faith. It has these these continuous verbs of what we're doing, and we're doing it. It's qualified by faith. The Christian life is a process. It is something that develops and continues, and we travel along By faith. And what is faith? Well, the Bible defines it for us. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. And what that means is that the Christian life consists in you believing God's word is true and consistently acting on the truth of it, even when you don't see it fully materialized and realized in your present experience. Sounds simple enough, right? Oh, but if we're honest with ourselves, living by faith, walking by faith, can be the hardest thing in the world. That's because in the moment, what you see with your eyes and feel in the depths of your emotions can seem so plausible to, right, to us, right? I mean, it's, it's natural to go along with the culture, right? It just feels so right when everybody else is doing it. There are times in our lives when the world that the Bible presents to us feels about as foreign to us as living on Mars. 
And to believe that the Bible is true and act on it feels like death. That's because, in a sense, it is. To walk by faith is to continually die to our old way of living and to continually be made alive in Christ. Who we know by faith. Now, I bring this up because the passage we're going to look at, Psalm 89, has much to teach us about exactly how we live by faith. But let me warn you, it doesn't teach us by way of saying, here are three easy steps to successfully living by faith. It doesn't do that. It doesn't do that, first of all, because there's nothing easy about it. But it doesn't do that, more importantly, because, as you you know if you think about it, the most important things in life are caught, not taught, right? I mean, the most important things you can't boil down to a simple process that we can give you and you can do it. No, they're caught as we embody the world in which they exist, as we see the examples in others, as we learn through a variety of factors in a variety of ways how we do it, by seeing, by by experiencing, and, and then eventually we get it. So this psalm teaches us about how to live by faith by giving us, sort of enveloping around us, if we listen to it carefully, the world of somebody who lives by faith in an extraordinary way. So that's what we're going to do. Now, this psalm is very long. I'm not going to begin by just reading the whole thing through. I'm afraid we would get lost as we get partway through. But I will begin by reading the introduction and the conclusion, because that frames everything that we're going to see. The introduction, verses 1 through 4. So look there, follow along there with me. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Now, skip down with me to verse 38 at the end of Psalm, Psalm 89. But now, notice here how the mood drastically changes. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his stronghold in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of the neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have turned back the edge of his sword. You have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord, will you hide your face forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity have you created all the children of man? What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which your faithfulness, by which your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked. 
And I bear in my heart the insults of the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Now notice the very end. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. What do you think about that psalm? It could seem a bit disjointed, couldn't it now? I mean, you have that praising God for his faithfulness, for his loving kindness in the beginning. And then he, he talks all about how God has abandoned the people. How God has let the king fall to nothing. And then at the very end, oh, blessed be the Lord forever and ever. Amen and amen. Um, some people, when they read this psalm, scholars who don't believe the Bible is true, actually speculate that this psalm really isn't anything coherent. It's rather a bunch of different things put together. But I think they propose that because they don't really understand what the Christian life is about. You know, we might wonder, one approach to reconciling it might be to say, well, yeah, of course he says that stuff in the beginning to praise God. And then he ends, blessed be the name of the Lord. But, but that's more like maybe a child that really wants something, comes up to the parents. Oh, mom and dad, you're the best mom and dad in the world. They're really interested in getting something from them, Right. They're just disguising their complaints. You know, I really need my, you know, such and such, such and such. No, that that can't be an option because this is inspired by God. This is true. We need to take it as its word. The praise that that this person, his name's Ethan, by the way, that we read that in the superscript above, the, the praise that Ethan is bringing to God is real. And yet also very real is the situation in which he's in, the horrible situation that he's in. And what is that situation? Well, well if we read that, that section I read that has that horrible that, that complaint about what he's going through, probably what that is talking about is that, that he is in exile. The nation of Israel has been plundered by the Babylonians, and they have been taken captive And now he sits in exile, away from his land. If you want to put that in, like, maybe your contemporary experience, just imagine what it would be like for you if you lived in a country and then that was taken over by a a violent um, occupation force. And all of a sudden, everything that you you lived upon and, and worked for was all taken away from you. You were uprooted. There was nothing stable in your life. That's something of what Ethan might be experiencing. It's, it's horrible. You, you wouldn't want to live that way. That experience is very real, but yet in the midst of that experience, what does he do? He's praising God. And I think that is what faith is all about. Faith is about believing that even though God hasn't made good on his promises yet, he will. And the unfulfillment is only temporary. The fulfillment will be forever. Faith is believing the word of promise and trusting it, even when we don't see it realized. Also, faith rejoices in the character of God because God is the kind of God who makes a covenant with his people. In other words, faith isn't just rejoicing in the fulfillment, what God will give me later on. Faith is rejoicing in the character of God who fulfills that such a one as God would be pleased to enter into a covenant with us, to promise us anything, to want to bind himself to us. That is the cause of joy with faith. 
And friends, how is your faith doing today? Are you praising God even in spite of the many trials that you might be experiencing in your life? Do you rejoice in His character of faithfulness even if there are many things left undone? Many things that you would love to change. Many things that you are pleading to God for Him to change. Well, friends, my prayer for us as we look at this psalm is that we as a people would grow in our faith. Okay, now that we've gotten our feet wet, let's enter into this psalm a little bit deeper. Notice there are a few words in verses 1 to 4 that are absolutely essential to everything that unfolds in this psalm. And they're actually essential to the whole life of faith, walking by faith. They are faithfulness, steadfast love, and covenant. If you understand the logic of those words, you understand the essence of the Christian life. And if you lived back then those words would have special meaning for you because they'd be really infused with the understanding of what, what the religious life was all about. Look at verse 1. You'll see, those, see two of those words. I will sing of the steadfast love, steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Now, these words describe God-making a covenant with his people, and God keeping his covenant with his people. To describe the covenant, let me read to you something by Tim Keller. He explains covenant better than I ever could, and this is what he says. A covenant is personal and legal. A personal and legal relationship. But it is a relationship made more loving and intimate than a mere legal relationship, yet more binding and enduring and accountable than a merely personal relationship. See what he's saying there? It's, it's legal and it's relational. It's a stunning blend of law and love. It is stunning because it is a personal relationship made more loving and intimate because it is legal through voluntarily, mutually binding vows to be loving and to be faithful no matter what the circumstance. In other words, a covenant is where the two parties say, I will be what I should be in loving you regardless. Not based on the performance of the other. Based on the promise. That word, steadfast love, means love not based on the other person's performance, as is so often the case in our relationships here on earth. It's love based on the promise. The promise to love. God enters in a covenant relationship with His people, not because His people have have earned the right to be in that relationship with God, not because they're so good and wonderful that God says, ah, yes, I want to enter into a relationship with these people, simply because God, in His loving kindness, chooses to. Do you see how dwelling on this leads to praising God? Does it make sense now, the logic, that that Ethan could start off praising God even when he's living in this sort of horrible existence? You see, I think it's obvious, if we really think about it, that we are all made for a covenant relationship. All of us, every one of us, are made for a covenant relationship. A proof of that, think about the love songs you might hear on the radio, or maybe sung yourself or play. If you think about them, they tend to make covenantal promises, don't they? People want to say, I will love you forever. When's the last time you heard a love song that says, I'm going to love you for the next couple months, and then probably I will stop? No, we, we want to promise when we love somebody. That's the nature of love, is to promise for everybody. 
But so often those human-to-human relationships fail, don't they? We don't live up to the promises. That's because the only one that can really give us the, 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 the depth of the covenant relationship for which we were created is God. Ethan here, the psalmist, has tasted the sweetness of being in a covenant relationship with God and nothing else matters. Now, there's one more thing we have to see by way of the introduction to this psalm, and that is how God manifests his covenant love and faithfulness to his people. And and that is through the kingship of David. Now, this is going to be a little bit more foreign to us. We have to put on our thinking caps to really understand how this works. But notice here in verse 3. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to my servant David. See that word covenant there? See, the fact is, God has chosen to organize his covenant around a covenant head. All covenants in the Bible have a mediator. Someone who stands in between God and man and mediates that covenant to the people. Brings that covenant to bear on the people. And in the case of this covenant we see here, that person is King David. King David is God's servant. And he stood between God and the people. And God made a covenant to the people by making a covenant to David. God's swearing that he will be with David is the way in which God is blessing his people. So David is sitting on the throne of this relatively puny little nation. But but the fact that they had a king meant that they were somebody. The king for this nation of Israel symbolized their national identity. And that national identity was rooted in who they were as God's chosen people. And God blessed his people through his king. Okay, that was sort of the introduction to the psalm, the first few verses. And then we get this long section in the middle. We're not going to understand all of it. But entering into this section in the middle, verses uh, 5 through 37, we see something of what it means to really indwell this covenant. We see how covenant and faithfulness, these are not just superficial ideas. These are integrated into the very heart of what the Bible is all about and what our lives ought to be all about. So, so entering into these verses just a little bit, we can't go too far right now, but just a little bit is going to help us see how integrated the idea of the covenant ought to be in our lives. Notice that this section begins by Ethan talking about how God is marked off from everything else because of how mighty and strong he is. This highlights at the very outset God's strength and majesty. Verse 9, you rule the raging sea. Verse 10, you scatter your enemies with your mighty arm. The point here in these early passages is that no one is as mighty or as powerful as God is. He is distinct from everyone else because of his power and glory. Now, that's just true if we think about who God is, right? You know, any concept of God is going to talk about his might and his power, and that's what makes him God. But, But notice, the attribute that Ethan keeps coming back to and circling back to again and again is God's covenant faithfulness. Look there at verse 8. Who is as mighty as you are, O Lord? So there we have reference to his might, but then notice what he says. With your faithfulness all around you. Or verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. 
See that there? The language here describes God as circumscribed, surrounded by his faithfulness and loving kindness. It it is all around him. It goes before him. The point that we need to see here is that covenantal love and faithfulness are not simply two attributes among many. They are really the reason why all of God's attributes are good. Everything about God comes to us by way of his covenantal love and faithfulness. Now, if you want to understand why that's the case, just ponder this scenario for a second. Imagine God were majestic, God is majestic and powerful, but not faithful and and displaying loving kindness. Imagine that were the situation for a second. Well, put yourself in that world. It would be horrific, wouldn't it? You would never know where you stood with God. You could be on his good side one day and his bad side the next day. His will would change and his nature would change. Bad would become the new good and then good would become the new bad. One day he would delight in showing compassion and the next day he would delight in tricking his people and deceiving them. All of God's mighty power could be turned against us at any point. Oh, but praise God, that's not the world we live in. Praise God that he is good and faithful and displays his loving kindness. This is why we benefit from who God is. And the psalmist then turns to exactly how we benefit from it. Notice verse 15. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout to walk O Lord, in the light of your face. This is talking about walking in light of God's covenant. Who exalt in your name all the day. In your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. And by your favor, our horn is exalted. I love that line there. You are the glory of their strength. Ethan is saying there, God's character, God's steadfast love and faithfulness is what makes their strength shine. It gives weight to their strength. In other words, God's strength is manifested in their strength. And the reason that is so is because God has promised that he will be with them. He's promised he will be for them. You can think of it like this. God's steadfast love and faithfulness are like power cords that run from God to us. They connect us to the greatness and the power of God. Without God's loving kindness and faithfulness, we would have no access to his character. We'd have no way of knowing if God was for us or against us. Our only hope would be that maybe God wouldn't be as powerful as he says he is. But because God is surrounded by faithfulness and covenant love, we know that then coming to him on the basis of this covenant that he makes with us, will benefit us. The one who stills the raging seas can then quiet our troubled hearts. We can lean on his powerful arm. His strength is for us. See why this idea of covenant is so huge in the Bible and so personal to us? Friends, I hope you can make from here this direct application to your life. Friends, do you worry about things? Do you fret Does your mind jump from here to there? Do you have no stability? Friends, you need to know God, and you need to know God by means of the covenant, because that tells you why you can rest in him. He makes promises that you can trust in. Listen to what uh, some theologians wrote about God's 
the, the covenant years ago. The language is a little bit old, but don't worry. Try to follow it and it'll help. They say the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe their obedience to him as their creator, they can never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward. Uh, That means in standard English that they won't know how God benefits them, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part by which he is pleased to express by way of covenant. You see, what that's saying there is that we cannot know God simply on our own terms. No, we're not in his league. In order for us to know God, he has to come down, condescend, and then he gets to dictate the terms of the relationship. We can't say, you know, I think I'd like to have a relationship with God that's kind of like this. And then God would say, okay, I'll be that for you. No, we don't get to do that. He's God. And if we're going to know him, it's going to be on his terms. And he gives us those terms in the covenant. Now, the context in which the people knew God back then was the covenant with David. Notice there at verse 19. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one, that's the king David, and said, I have granted help to him who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him, my arm shall strengthen him, the enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked shall not humble him. See, what's going on there is that all the the stuff that we saw about God, all the great attributes of strength that we saw about God in the earlier part of this verse, of this chapter rather, are now uh, promised for the king. God's strength will be the strength for the king. God will establish the king and then exercise his strength through the king. And this is so very clearly a covenantal relationship. Look down at verse 30. We see the the true covenantal aspect of this relationship. If his children forsake my law, I'm talking about David here, and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my covenants, Then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquities with stripes. Listen to this. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Now, this section here is a lot of fun. Uh, in Hebrew, we call this, it's a, it's a chiasm. It's a chiastic structure. We've talked about this before, where you, you get the same idea repeated in the beginning, and then in the end, and then in the middle, and then almost to the end. And then right in the center, there's a point that has no corresponding you know, to the top or bottom. And right at that point is the very center of what he's trying to say. What is that point? It's the verse that says, I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. See, the point in this covenantal relationship is that God promises unconditionally, I will bring these promises to pass for David. God will do this. Even, even if the people are not faithful to do their end of the deal. 
In other words, God is saying, it's repeated in the New Testament, that God will be faithful even when they are faithless because he will not deny himself. God will not go back on his promises. Why? Because he is a faithful God. In other words, this is truly an unconditional covenant. This does not depend upon the people in order to fulfill it. It depends solely upon God to fulfill it. It doesn't matter what the people do. God will keep his end of the deal. Now, notice how important Notice how important God's word is in the covenant. You don't understand the covenant unless you understand the importance of God's word. Did you notice? A couple of things in there. One, this passage here is, is almost exactly word for word of what Israel read for us earlier out of 2 Samuel 7. Right? This is where God promises the covenant to David through his prophet Nathan. God speaks his word through the prophet Nathan. And then did you notice the importance of words in this passage too, where God says, I will not lie. In other words, his words, those things that come out of his mouth, mean something, and God will make them mean something. Covenant promises depend on words, because words shape the context of our relationship. Sometimes we... Uh, we, we go back on that a little bit. We say actions speak louder than words. I don't think that's really true. And suppose a, a husband did something nice for his wife, but then said, yeah, I'm only doing this because I'm supposed to. Those words would invalidate everything that was done, wouldn't they? Words matter because they set the context of the covenant. And, and they give people things to bank on and trust. Now, let me just make one point of application while we're here. Don't call it faith to bank on something that you think God will do for you, but he hasn't promised you. He hasn't promised in his word. And what I mean by this is that I hear people sometimes talk about how they're trying to have great faith to believe that God will do something, uh, but he hasn't promised it. That's not faith. Now, God very well may do it. He may, he may bring that unbelieving relative that you love to faith. He may, he may cure you of a disease. He may, do, he may give you a child. He may do all kinds of things. He may bring you a spouse. But unless he's promised it, you can't claim that it's faith to believe that he's going to do it. I mean, let's say that a friend of yours is sitting by the phone all day this afternoon, and they say they just have great faith that you're going to call them. But you haven't promised to call them. They're just sitting by the phone believing you will. Well, you very well may decide to call them. But it's not faith for them to sit by the phone waiting for you. No, that's maybe presumption, or I'm not sure exactly what that is. What we need to do is look at what God has actually promised in his word for us, and then believe that and bank on that. So what we see here is that God has been faithful to his people by being faithful to the king. A good king is going to be good for the people, And that is how God has chosen to bless the people. But there's a problem. And we already saw that problem in the verses we read earlier. It starts at verse 38. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. Perhaps this is a reference back, you know, talking about the dust. Maybe it goes back to Adam, who returned to the dust. The king has died. His kingdom has died with it. David has now long passed off the scene. There is no visible king over Israel. The invading armies are coming at will. And Ethan here is pointing out the discrepancy, 
the painful discrepancy between what God has long ago promised in 2 Samuel 7 and the reality that Israel is experiencing right then and there. And friends, this is no mere academic problem. The Bible teaches us that the Davidic king is the very expression of God's faithfulness and covenant love. So, so there's a problem in how they understand, is God being faithful or not? And just as, just as the king being strong was going to bless the people, now the king being weak or no king at all is going to be horrible for the people. Notice Ethan admits that back then. He says in verse 50, I bear in my heart the insults of the many nations. And, and then notice what those insults are. Verse 51, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. That is the king. So notice the connection between all of Israel being despised and the king not being there on the throne. Now it's very interesting where Ethan locates the root of this problem. Why did it all fall apart? What happened that it's not there anymore? See, David, for the most part, was a good king. When he was on the throne, the people prospered. But he had one fatal flaw that brought it all down. No, it wasn't his lust. What he did with Bathsheba was wrong. But it could be confessed and repented of and be forgiven and be restored. No, David's fatal flaw was this. He died. And when he died... That brought the downfall of the kingdom. Look at verse 47. For what vanity have you created the children of man? What man can live and never see death? The Bible talks here about the vanity of death. The fact that you could work your whole life to try to do something, and then at the end you can't take it with you. And never is that vanity more felt than in a ruler who works his whole life to build a nation, and then he dies. And what becomes of the nation? And see, what, what, what's going on here is that Ethan is wrestling with the, the reality of the unconditional promise resting on a mediator who's going to die. And therefore, it's not going to work. You know, they say a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. A covenant is only as strong as its mediator. And when the mediator dies, the covenant's going to fall too. So this seems like a fatal flaw in the whole kingship here. The unconditional promise is made upon people who will die. What's going to happen? Well, what is God going to do about that? Well, God has a plan. It's not ultimately going to be fulfilled by David. It's going to be fulfilled by David's greater son. 800 years after David, there was another son who was born. He was the king. He came into this world to be the king. But then he died. And it looked for a time like... Death triumphed. Evil triumphed. But then something happened to this king that's never happened before. He rose again from the dead. Never in history has somebody walked out of the grave with a body that would never die again. Now this mediator cannot die. This mediator can be one for whom, upon whom there can be an everlasting covenant because he is an everlasting mediator. And see, this solves another glaring problem in this passage, too. Do you know why the people were in exile? Why did they, they uh, have all the problems they did? It was because they had sinned and disobeyed God. You see, on the one hand, God gives this unconditional promise to the people. But on the other hand, God also says that a holy God cannot bless a sinful people. 
So the fact that the people are sinful, that poses a very serious problem. How's God going to be true to his covenant and true to his character? It looks irreconcilable. Oh, but it's not. Because he sends Jesus, who is the perfect one. And he takes upon himself the sin of all the people who will ever trust in him. And then God can bless the people in Christ. God can establish his covenant with Christ and include everybody else in that covenant. God can be true to his covenant and be true to his holiness at the same time. Because Jesus dies on the cross, taking the people's sin upon himself. Friends, if you don't know Jesus like that, friends, I would encourage you, I would, I would plead with you to, to look at him as the Savior. Because there's no one else who can mediate between you and God. No one else will be a bridge to take you to God. David died. Adam died. Whatever else you might put your confidence in, it's not strong enough to get you to God. Only Jesus can. So come to him and trust him and follow him in faith. And follow him in faith not just in a one-time event, but follow him in faith throughout your whole life. Friends, I don't know all of what you're facing in your life this morning. For some of you, I know some things, but sure, there's a, a mountain inside of sorrow and, and some joy, but much sorrow. And, and if you're going to, but I know what you need to do. You need to walk by faith. That alone will allow you to praise God and rejoice in him, even in the midst of great sorrow. And see, let this passage be a great encouragement to that. Because this passage creates a tension that seems irreconcilable, right? It seems, you know, how ever is this going to be resolved? God's covenant promise and his holiness. The, the unconditional promise to David. The fact that David died. It looks like it can't be resolved. And what does God do? He resolves it perfectly in Christ. And if God took that problem and fixed it so perfectly... Can't you trust that he can fix any other problem in your life? Doesn't that give you the strength to walk by faith as you see his faithfulness played out over and over and over again? Well, friends, I pray that it would. That you would see him as faithful and see his covenant blessings upon all those who are in Christ and trust him and follow him. Let's pray.